Bryce Cook, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Doing good. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Excellent. No, not a problem at all. Uh, you about you and I have been talking the last uh, couple of weeks about about putting this recording on because of uh, of a document that you've created. Uh, before we jump into that, though, Bryce, uh, why don't you spend a few minutes and just give our, our listeners kind of a brief bio about yourself, and that way they can kind of get a feel for uh, for who you are. Sure, be happy to. So uh, I live in Mesa, Arizona. My wife and I uh, raised our kids here. We have six kids, all pretty much grown now. Our youngest is 20 or will be 26 at the end of the year. No, 25. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Um, we met at BYU, kind of a typical story, uh, right after my mission, got married, uh, finished up school. I came or we came back to Arizona to, to do grad school where I got an MBA uh, at Arizona State, and uh, we've lived here ever since. I've been uh, very active in the church. We raised our kids all fully active, and uh, all our boys, all three boys, served missions. Two of our girls are married in the temple. So uh, I would say we were a very orthodox, somewhat strict family, but not overly crazy strict Um we, we have a very close and loving family. Uh, the thing that really kind of shocked us uh, that we were not expecting was when my oldest son was a freshman at BYU. He wrote us a letter before Thanksgiving, an email saying, Mom and Dad, I'm gay. And uh, our life has never uh, been the same since then. Uh, at first, it was a, a huge kind of scary shock, like it is for so many Mormons. And you wonder, oh, my goodness, did I do something wrong? Is it the way we raised him? But, you know, we did everything pretty much by the book. We had family prayer, family home evening. We taught our kids well. We had really close, loving relationships that could talk to us about pretty much anything. And so I was at a loss. Um but the one thing we did know is that we loved our son and that that didn't change anything um, as far as that relationship goes. And we assured him of that. Uh, and then in time, we, we learned more about it. He expressed more of his feelings. I'll cut to the chase because this could be a podcast all in itself. But I guess the, the short of it is uh, we became advocates and I guess you could even say activists we started five years ago we, we helped start uh, an LDS support group here in Arizona that's grown to over 500 people online and we have uh, get-togethers every month we have an annual conference last year Steve Young and his wife spoke as our keynote speakers this year we have Richard and Claudia Bushman speaking uh, it's always been a fantastic conference so that gives you a little bit of background about about me and, and how we came to this issue that we'll be discussing. Gotcha, gotcha. And you and I have met uh, once. We were we were both together at a get together in uh, in Arizona, and I had the pleasure of meeting you. And, and can just tell that you're just just a, a great man who's trying to kind of figure this out, kind of as the rest of us are. Which leads leads into this document that you've created. Uh, tell us the title of it in. And maybe give us a little bit of information on on why you and I are sitting here today and having a conversation about this paper that uh, that you wrote. Right. So, probably about 
six months ago or so, uh, I started getting this strong feeling that someone needed to write a thorough, in-depth essay or article or study about the church's position on homosexuality. Um, and, and I guess the, the model that I thought of was an article way back in 1973 that was published in Dialogue by a man named Lester Bush. And some of your listeners may be familiar with him. But it was a groundbreaking, seminal article that probably helped influence maybe more than anything. Well, I can't say how much it influenced, but it, at least according to President Kimball's biography, it had an influence on President Kimball in his introspection and thinking and seeking a revelation about blacks in the priesthood. That's what Lester Bush addressed was basically the the history behind the ban and how so many of these important facts uh, had been forgotten, such as Joseph Smith ordaining black people and um, and why Brigham Young uh, is basically the one who instituted it. So I, I kept thinking we need something similar to a Lester Bush article for LGBT people because there is so much ignorance and misunderstanding about what it means to be gay, how it fits into our doctrine, and the moral reasoning that members of the church and general authorities often use that really, in my mind, was was inaccurate. And I had, over the 13 years since our oldest son came out as gay, uh, I have read, studied, pondered, prayed, uh, and sought as much knowledge as I could about this subject. And I've come to know and become close friends with hundreds of gay people and their families and have read hundreds of their personal accounts. So I had all this information percolating in my mind and I just said to myself and I, and I, as I said, I, I kept feeling this strong impression. I need to write something. I need to write a Lester Bush type of article. And so over the course of about six months with some stops and starts in between, uh, I recently finished it. It's called, What Do We Know of God's Will for His LGBT Children? An Examination of the LDS Church Position on Homosexuality. Um, and I had to go through a one-month review process where, where I sent it to about 20 people, everyone from scholars to uh, just everyday members of the church, uh, all across the spectrum, gay, straight, progressive, orthodox, because I wanted to get just a variety of opinion on it. So this helped me kind of tighten it up a little. And then I just released it on its own website last, uh, late last Saturday night where, uh, let's see, the website is called mormonlgbtquestions.com. And, uh, I think I've got like 12,000 hits just in the last three days. So it's, it's really taken off. I've gotten a lot of amazing responses from everything from state presidencies to, just common variety members of the church who said this has helped me see this a different way that I never thought I could. So that's sort of the background to it, Bill. Yeah, it's quite interesting. And and I'll tell you, as you know, I'm an, I'm an advocate for this issue. This is something that I I want us just to have conversations about. And and I and I don't ever want to be seen as telling church leaders what they have to do or that something has to change. But, but I will tell you, my fear is 
that that with a guy like Lester Bush who writes this article in dialogue and and it makes its rounds and somehow President Kimball comes into touch with it, I, I sometimes worry that as the leadership transitions from generation to generation and as those guys President Kimball and the guys who are around him, as those guys pass away and new guys are called, I, I worry that the the awareness that those past guys sometimes changed their mind or developed new insight and ideas by listening and hearing out lay members of the church who are writing and saying and speaking. I worry sometimes that that disappears and that the next generation doesn't realize that that's one way to, to gain new insight into the issues of their day. And, and I just, it's, you know, it's my hope as we have this nice conversation today, Bryce, that people who listen, people who tune in and, and hear the things we're talking about, that, that these things, someone might be open to like saying like, Hey, this is the position we're holding right now, but this information is valuable and it adds insight and it allows us to make a shift. And, and for anybody and everybody who's hearing this to be open to that. Yes. And, and that's, I think that's a very good, uh, sort of disclaimer at the beginning, Bill, is that I in no way, uh, meant this paper to be, uh, any kind of a club or criticism. Uh, I, I really tried to maintain a mostly dispassionate and neutral tone. I think it's clear what my position is, but I, uh, I, I ask a lot of questions more than, and more than drawing conclusions. I, I, I state observations and ideas and then ask questions. Um, and, and I don't, uh, I, I'm not saying that the church has it wrong, uh, explicitly. I, although I guess I should say, I think that we do have a lot of things wrong about it. And I try to point out some of those things, but, but in the end, I guess the thesis of the paper, uh, just, just to sort of cut to that so we won't pe- keep people waiting. But I think the general thesis is, in this examination of the church's doctrine and morality of it and the, the empirical, uh, observation, that is, what are the fruits of the church's position is the sort of unavoidable conclusion is that the church's position does not appear to be of God because there are so many negative, uh, consequences and it doesn't necessarily square with, with doctrine. Uh, and, and, um, Given that takeaway, I guess the caveat is, caveat is not that I'm uh, trying to, to push the church leaders to say accept this position because I will say this. I will acknowledge right up front that my perspective uh, and my conclusion could be wrong. Okay, I, as, as, as much as I have studied this out and prayed and pondered and researched I will always acknowledge that I could be wrong. That's one thing that as I've grown older and uh, my, my views and opinions have become less dogmatic, less orthodox. And so I will always be willing to accept uh, truth wherever it comes from. And while I've just written a 60 plus page uh, essay that I think Indicates that, uh, that I don't, I don't believe I'm wrong, but I am willing to be open if someone can give me a good counter argument or if there's something that God has or sees that's much larger than what I'm able to see and express in this paper, I'm open to that. And, and I believe in the end, 
however, that, you know, the truth will come out one way or the other. And so my my real intent with this paper is to to provoke thought, to get people to ask questions and to think about uh, some of the problems that uh, are occurring because of the church's position and also to think about a lot of the good things that we see uh, with with gay people who uh, are are living uh, not according to the church's position, that, that, that are in same-sex marriages, that are in committed, loving marriages, and who are uh, really reaping the benefits of, uh, you know, a law upon which there are blessings predicated, and, and they're really realizing those same blessings that straight married couples are. So that's sort of, a, uh, I guess, a little peek at the, the end of the paper, but just, again, acknowledging that... Um, I am humble about my position, or I, I mean, I seek to be humble about it. In that, uh, you know, if there's if there's anything that I, I've missed, uh, I'm willing to listen. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I just, and we'll jump in here in two seconds. I, I know that Lester Bush had an impression on President Kimball and those around him, and it's amazing that there's this lay member who writes this paper. And what the far-reaching effects are of that paper when people will just listen and think and not be defensive. And it's just my hope as we go through this, Bryce, that, that today's members from top to bottom that were open to listening and hearing and valuing the conversation and what insights come from that, even if it's not the position we currently hold. And, and I hope that we're all like that. And, and I know you spoke to that just now. I, um, Let's start off. I know you start off early in the paper reading the church's current position from handbook number two. I'll read that here, and then I want to follow up here with a question. Uh, the handbook says, as a doctrinal principle uh, based on scriptures, the church affirms that marriage between a man and a woman is essential to the creator's plan for the eternal destiny of his children. Sexual relations are proper only between a man and a woman who are legally and lawfully wedded as husband and wife, any other sexual relations, including those between persons of the same gender, are sinful and undermine the divinely created institution of the family. The church accordingly affirms defining marriage as the legal and lawful union between a man and a woman. Now, I've got a question, but it just strikes me as I'm reading this that the Latter-day Saints of the 1800s would have not been keeping the handbook based on the gospel definition in today's church, right? That is very true. And that's one of the things that, that uh, I try to bring out in the paper is the changing nature of doctrine, which we really don't have a very good view of because of correlation. Everything's, everything seems to be so consistent going all the way back to, to Adam till today. Everyone seems to be this Mormon in the, you know, the 21st century, but uh, no, doctrines as fundamental as the nature of God have, have changed from, you know, the beginnings of our church until today. I mean, they're setting a standard that it's a legal and lawful marriage between a man and a woman, and many of the church uh, marriages that were honored as such in the 1800s by even prophets such as Brigham Young, Wilford Woodruff, John Taylor – those very men were in polygamous relationships which were not legally and lawfully wedded. It just seems kind of as a paradox that we, just off the very beginning, that we need to begin to kind of uh, wrestle with this. But the question I want to kind of lead into is, 
in the article, you, you speak at length about some of this. I've seen tons of quotes. I've read some of the papers that have been written before that go through what some of the leaders have taught in the past. Um, you make the comment that past leaders spoke with disdain and distrust uh, of homosexual uh, individuals. And I'm just wondering if you could maybe just give a, a couple of examples. So if a listener is hearing this kind of a conversation for the very first time, they might realize that we've said and taught things differently in the past. And some of those things were just to be frank, were inappropriate and, and were just as harmful as the theories that, that current leaders disavow today, for instance, in the race and priesthood essay. Would you give us just a few examples of some of the, the harsh things leaders in the past taught uh, on this issue? Sure. And, and probably the, the best source uh, is President Kimball's book, The Miracle of Forgiveness, which is, you know, a, one of the all-time popular church books, uh, which is now out of print. Thankfully, the publisher, I believe it's Deseret Book, made that decision because while there are a number of good things in it, it's it's been considered a pretty harsh book uh, for a lot of reasons. And in this book, there's one whole chapter devoted to homosexuality, and the title of that chapter is Crime Against Nature. And in that chapter, he describes homosexuality and homosexuality, homosexuals, using terms such as ugly, repugnant, ever-deepening degeneracy, evil. He calls them perverts, deviants, and weaklings. Uh, so it's... It's definitely a far cry from the way uh, church leaders speak of it today. But in a way, it really it reflects the, the generation in time. And so there are a lot of parallels to um, the race and the priesthood essay. Like you say, Brigham Young's thinking about black people really reflected the thinking of most Americans, uh, you know, in that era. So Kimball and... Uh, Mark Peterson and then Elder Packer really reflect the, the the thinking of their generation, and so they spoke of homosexuality in in very um, harsh terms. And this, of course, had a, a hugely negative, devastating impact on uh, you know poor young kids who grew up gay in the church uh, and, and not knowing what to think when they hear their beloved church church leaders using those kinds of terms and realizing that you know. They're being referred to that way. Yeah, it was kind of interesting to see the the talk that President Packer gave several years ago now, where in his talk he makes a comment about why would a God ever cause someone to be born that way, and I'm paraphrasing him. And and he says it in conference, but by the time the text comes out, the words have changed, and and it's you can kind of see this moment in church history where the old guard holds this other idea and the new guard is saying, we're just not going to do that anymore. And, and I hope that we're sensitive as we listen to this, you know, as listeners listen to this episode of, of the shifts and transitions that the church has made and the changes that have occurred. Um, in your article, you say almost all gay Mormons, particularly those over the age of 30 have gone through intense periods of fasting, prayer and hyper religious religiosity, pleading with God to change this fundamental aspect of their core nature only to fall into despair and self-recrimination 
when the promised change never came. And, and this speaks to that old guard. That old guard used to teach, and I've heard, I've heard bishops and stake presidents, I've heard members talk about it this way, that, that being gay wasn't something that was stuck to you. It was something you could fix. It was something you could get therapy for. You could go talk to somebody. There were programs that you could send your child away and pay money. And those people promised that when your child came out of the program, they would no longer be gay. That's very much kind of the old guard perspective within the church of, of how this issue was handled. Um, it seems like the institutional church today currently holds the position that homosexuality doesn't change. We, and I'm sure we'll hit on it. Elder Holland mentions this in conference. It's kind of the first time ever we specifically talk about homosexuality in general conference where, where Elder Holland reaches out to these, these individuals and says essentially that no one expects it to change. That's just not something we should even be trying to make happen. Um, it feels as if some believe this has always been the church's position that, that being, you know, being homosexual is just something you're born with. You can't fix it. You can't change it. And so you just have to deal with it in the right ways, the gospel prescribed ways here in this life. Um, what do we know about the past church leaders in terms of the position that they held then? Um, what, what kind of things do we have in our past that have been said, uh, in regards to, to the homosexual member if they, pray hard enough or work enough that they can change their attraction. Right. Uh, so you described it. it. It was absolutely seen as some sort of a spiritual disease or mental disease. And and that really was the paradigm of the mental health profession and psychology uh, in the 50s and 60s. And then around the 70s, um, the uh, DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, removed homosexuality from uh, that volume because uh, the medical profession realized that it was not a disease. However, the church leaders, uh, you know, President Kimball up through the 70s still felt that it was and that it was curable because, again, that was their thinking. And, and it comported with their spiritual thinking that God would not create someone like this, that this had to be some sort of a mental or spiritual disease. And given that, uh, it therefore had to be curable. President Kimball was very clear on that in his Miracle of Forgiveness book. Um, he said, for instance, he says, um, it's curable and forgivable with effort after consideration of the evil aspects, the ugliness and prevalence of the evil of homosexuality. The glorious thing to remember is that it is curable and forgivable. Certainly it can be overcome. So that was the feeling then. And while the official church position isn't that way. I still believe there are a lot of members that, 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 that believe that. I mean, I think younger people and, and members who know gay people are, are kind of beyond that. But after reading or after issuing this article, I've had several people reach out to me that still kind of have this old thinking and, and it's, it's surprising, but there's still a lot of people that, that think that way. And so that's one of the things I really wanted to, to dispel with this article is that that is not the case. And even the church's official position uh, doesn't recognize that. Yeah, and it, it just struck me as we're sitting here talking. I just pulled it up on my phone as you were answering that last question. Um, this past week, the, the Mormon leak site, uh, site leaked two additional documents. And, and one of the documents was a... Uh, paper that has been distributed among the uh, general authorities of the church on how to answer certain questions. And 
in one of, and, and this is just one of these things that just, it just brushes me kind of the wrong way. The, there's a question on aversion therapy. Um, why did the church support the barbaric practice of aversion therapy by which gays were subjected to physical pain in clinics to divert their sexual attraction to the same sex? And then the primary answer that the church leader is supposed to give is that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has not and does not now recommend or sponsor such therapy. And, and I, you know, I'm sure there's some way that that, that's being forthright or being honest. But we also ought to acknowledge, right, that BYU used to do shock therapy, uh, to, to homosexual members who, um, feeling like this was something that could be fixed, feeling like this was something the church was telling them, teaching them could be fixed, that there was programs at the university that is run by the church and church leaders among the top 15 sit on the board for that actually, um, allowed shock therapy as a, as a possible cure to be done at its own university, correct? That's absolutely correct. I've read, um, a number of accounts of that, uh, from individuals who actually went through that process. Uh, and that was done at BYU. So I guess the church's response is that, you know, BYU professors were doing their own thing. And so the, the church can disavow any knowledge of it, but BYU was participating in those, uh, aversion therapies. Without yeah. It. Yeah. So it's just one more, one more piece of data that just goes to show that Again, in the past, the church held the idea, or at least we did within our culture, and it permeated into uh, leadership and into the university that this was something that could be fixed. You uh, you spend some time in the article. This is this is one of the places I find interesting, and and I think you set this up really well. Um, you talk about past and present stances, which we're talking a little bit about right now, but let's dive a little further into that. Um, there's like four different things that. Um, that you kind of spend some time on here, just kind of setting up the conversation. Uh, let's go into each of those and just, you can share your thoughts, maybe where we were uh, in the past and where we are today to give listeners kind of an idea of how we've shifted on each of these issues. Um, the first one is, is it a choice? Uh, would you mind just sharing a few minutes just on that? Right. And, and let me just give you a, a little intro into uh one of the reasons why I put this table in in here is because, you know, so many people say, oh, the doctrine on homosexuality, that can never change. That's eternal. And so I wanted to show how much it's already changed. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, fundamental beliefs and teachings that in their time would have absolutely been considered doctrine because they were being taught by the Lord's prophet and apostles, which are now 180 degrees different. So if that can change then I think, you know, anything could possibly change. We can never say never. So that's sort of the, the reason for putting this out here to show what has changed. So the first one was, as you mentioned, is it a choice? And uh, I, I have just a couple example quotes, one from President Kimball from The Miracle of Forgiveness, and I won't read the quote, uh, and another one from Elder Packer in a 1976 General Conference address where he says there is a falsehood that some are born with an attraction to their own kind with nothing they can do about it. They are just that way and can only yield to those desires. He says that is a malicious and destructive lie. The present position is, uh, you know, there's like the, the uh, head note at the oldmormonsandgays.org website 
said, even though individuals do not choose to have such attractions, they do choose how to respond to them. The current Mormon and Gay.org in the church teaching section says, while same-sex attraction is not a sin, it can be a challenge. While one may not have chosen to have these feelings, he or she can commit to keep God's commandments. So <clears throat> those and a number of other things, particularly um, an in-depth article that Elder Oaks did back way back in 1995, acknowledged that being gay could be inborn. And uh, they at least acknowledge that it is not a choice, as those two previous quotes say. Excellent. And then the next one you've got there is what causes homosexuality. I, I've read some of the quotes from early church history, and the ideas behind this are sad, but but fascinating to the extent that, that some of these crazy things that we've kind of come up with. And again, it's not just the church. You hit on this earlier. It's It's the same thoughts and ideas that are running within the culture as well. Exactly. So like one of the classic uh, beliefs of what caused homosexuality was having a distant father and an overbearing mother, uh, which long ago dropped by psychology. But that persisted in church teachings. For instance, uh, in a conference address in 1977, uh, Elder J. Richard Clark said homosexuality would not occur where there is a normal, loving father and son relationship. So that's a pretty bold statement. And, you know, how much pain and suffering did that cause parents whose children were gay thinking, you know, fathers thinking, oh, my goodness, what did I do to turn my son gay? I mean, that even crossed my mind when when I first learned of it. it was it something I did? Was I not close enough to my sons? Was I, you know, too strict or too harsh? What did I do? So now the church says, um, don't blame yourself for your child's same-sex attraction. This is no one's fault. Blame is neither necessary nor helpful. And that's in the 10 Tips for Parents on the church's website. And there are a number of other uh, quotes about that. So that, so, so the parental um, cause, that's been taken off the table. Um, another one that uh, is, was often cited in the old days by President Kimball and others was masturbation and pornography, that those... Often, in, in President Kimball's words, he says, too often lead to grievous sin, even to that sin against nature, homosexuality. What's the church's position now? Uh, this is uh, from the Elder Oaks and Wickman interview in 2006, and they say the church does not have a position on the causes of any of these susceptibilities or inclinations, including those related to same-gender attraction. Those are scientific questions whether nature or nurture, those are things the church doesn't have a position on. So the church now no longer says anything about masturbation or pornography being a cause. Uh, they recognize, I, I presume, that the scientific and medical community uh, also acknowledges that, that those are not causes of homosexuality, that it's something that's inborn. The uh, the next one you've got is the discussion around, is this a fixable or curable thing? Right. And so we talked a little about that, uh, and I read the quote uh, from President Kimball about that it is curable and forgivable, that they saw it as a disease. And now on mormonengage.org, it says in the, in the frequently asked questions section, a change in attraction should not be expected or demanded as an outcome by parents or leaders. So that's, I think, a really important statement. And then the talk that you alluded to by Elder Holland in his October 2015 
general conference address where he talked about the missionary who came home because uh, he was uh, gay or had same-sex attraction, as, as he said it. And um, when when that missionary went through uh, you know a lot of trials and hardship and everything, Elder Holland acknowledged, and, and these were his words, he said, I must say this son's sexual orientation did not somehow miraculously change. No one assumed it would. So that was nice to have a church leader acknowledge that, that it's not something that, um, that, that can be changed. Right, right. And then the last one you've got here is the difference between being homosexual and acting on it. And, and I think as I look at the previous three, uh, I don't know why it is, but I don't see them as centered in theology maybe. But this last one seems to begin to kind of flirt around the theological ramifications of things and and I just want to get your thoughts then on uh, on that idea of the difference between being homosexual uh being born with you know these feelings versus what the what the church would lay down as something different which is acting on it and and the way they used to see that in the past. Yeah, you you really hit the the nail on the head there. Um so in the past it was seen again as a disorder or a perversion or a sexual deviancy. Um, just being homosexual. And, and that was really sort of a medical scientific question, which has been sufficiently addressed. So the church now says, okay, being homosexual is not a sin. However, acting on it is. So they, they've kind of evolved, you know, part way to saying, okay, you know, all, all of you who are are gay or have these feelings of same-sex attraction, there's nothing wrong with that. That is an inclination or a susceptibility. But, you know, if you act on it, then it still is sinful, even if it's in a committed, monogamous, uh, legal marriage. Um, the, the church still sees that as a sin. And so that's one of the major questions then that we, we delve into in this paper is why? What makes that a sin? How do we know that it's a sin? How does that comport with the scripture? What scripture is there? What, uh, what do we know about, um, God's will on this subject on, on, you know, fundamental doctrines that, uh, have been declared by prophets past and present? So that, that is sort of the springboard. And, and I want to follow up here. Two things. One is that leaders come out in the present moment. And this is, this has happened for as long as the church has been around, but the church comes out in the present moment and says the church does not hold X, Y, Z position or the church does hold A, B, C position, but it never really stops to acknowledge like, yeah, that's what we're doing today. But in the past, we did do it differently and leaders did say different things. And, and some leaders said things that went against what we're saying right now. And, and I think when you don't connect those dots, when you don't say that out loud, you, in a sense, allow an older generation and a younger generation to have a disconnect between themselves. That there's the younger generation grows up thinking it was always that way, and the older generation, in some ways, almost gets to die off without ever having to confront the fact that something was wrong with the way their generation posed an issue. And and so I would ask you one, like maybe your thoughts on that, but then I also want to ask you kind of a connected question. The, the church seems to take the stance today that it, um, Elder Neil Anderson and Elder Christofferson, for instance, both in conferences about four or five years ago, maybe six years ago now, 
said that doctrine is what all 15 men teach. It's not what one leader says over there. And so if you were to have some FaceTime with a church leader and you said, what about what President Kimball said? What about what President Brigham Young said? What about what President Wilford Woodruff said? They would say that that was just those men speaking as a man, speaking with a limited understanding, and that they didn't speak officially for the church. And yet you and I both know like there's times within the church where the general membership as a whole understands an issue a certain way because it's the way that that leadership, maybe even only one leader or the group taught something, but nobody ever counters it. And so you're left to honestly arrive at that belief or holding that perspective. I guess I want to get your thoughts on when we don't have public conversations or when we put the onus on one leader for that incorrect teaching, it seems to provide a disconnect for just how um, perpetuated these beliefs and teachings were in times past. Right. Um, so basically two parts or two or two questions there. The first one having to do with the uh, disconnect and what maybe current church leaders are teaching versus what past are teaching. And how people don't always realize that. And the reason is that church leaders rarely, if ever, uh, explicitly contradict or say that a past church leader was wrong. They just don't do that. Uh, there have been a few instances like Brigham Young's teaching on Adam-God theory, which has been refuted, for instance, by Elder McConkie and called a false doctrine. Um, but... But most things that were taught in the past that are contradicted by current teaching, uh, you're right. The, the, the current church leaders don't refer to the past and say, this was wrong. This is the way we do it now. It's just kind of ignored. And, it, and it, there are ebbs and flows in, a, in what's considered doctrine, which is the second part of your question is, what is doctrine? And it's funny because on, on various Facebook groups and websites, you always hear, oh, well, this is a revelation or this is doctrine or whatever. To me, doctrine is whatever is being taught by the current uh, top leadership and accepted by the church as doctrine. It's, it's that simple. If you ask a person, what is the doctrine on uh, homosexuality? It's whatever the church's position is now and, and what they're teaching now. And in you know 30 or 40 years, it might be different, just as now it's different from what it was 30 or 40 years ago. Um, and, and I think that's where you get into um, doctrine has to t- has to stand the test of time to be considered true doctrine. And I guess that's why a church leader might say, if, if pressed, you know, about an old teaching that is clearly inaccurate, they'll say, well, they were speaking as a man. Well, back then, everyone took, you know, that as speaking as a prophet. It was held to be doctrine. But with the test of time and looking back in hindsight and seeing the fruits uh, perhaps the negative fruits or the falseness of, of those teachings, we can now say that, yeah, it was not a true doctrine. So I think that's one of the key uh, tests, and that's one of the things that I address in this paper, is what are the fruits of doctrine? And, and that's one way to know. And does the membership, does the general membership see and feel uh, that it's a true doctrine by the spirit of the Holy Ghost? Does it testify to them of the, of the truth? 
Right. It, it feel, I just want to take this one step further. It, it, it feels like in the reality of life that the goal would be for each of us to move away from just checking boxes of keeping commandments and to move to a place where we really do rely on the Holy Ghost within us and we live by this like spirit of the law, like, like we make decisions based on what the Holy Ghost is telling us. And, and it's my fear that when church leadership um, doesn't doesn't talk out loud about the past positions church leaders of the past held and how today we see them as being incorrect, like it's almost like we keep the membership, and, and I'm not saying it's intentional, I think it's human nature to some extent, but we keep the general membership kind of in this infantile stage where they assume, because again, it's been taught, that the gospel never changes, the church, you know, maybe changes here or there, but the doctrine never changes. And, and we have this constant belief that's always the same. And so the average member is left to believe that whatever the church, church is teaching today in its manuals and general conference talks, that's obviously the position it held 50 years ago. That's obviously the position it held 200 years ago. And so there's no room to ever question anyone. Because you just have this kind of blind trust. But, but it would, it seems like if we had these adult conversations where we said, look, leaders of the past taught XYZ and, and they were wrong. And Elder McConkie in a private correspondence with, um, Eugene England said that it is, it's part of the sifting process of mortality that false doctrine is taught in the church and, and that leaders teach false doctrine. I think sometimes if we just say that out loud, like, it kind of acknowledges the elephant in the room and all of a sudden everybody can say like, look, let's just, let's just go more with what's in my gut. Let's go more with what's in the, what the Holy ghost is telling me. And let me be, let me be open to shifting and changing my view rather than this hardcore line in the sand. This doesn't change. And you just assume that your church leaders are always right. When the reality is this is a whole lot messier than that. Right. Yeah. I hope that, um, the pendulum is swinging in the other direction. We've become very authoritarian and, uh, you know, had this mantra of follow the prophet for quite some time now where, where people really are afraid to question or, or, or to think for themselves, you know, what, what is the, um, moral or proper thing to do in a certain situation? In a way, their agency's been taken from them or, or they've, abdicated it uh, to simply say, well, follow the prophet. And um, and that can be destructive, I think. And, and uh, so I appreciate the pushback that people like Patrick Mason and Richard Bushman are giving on that, saying that, uh, you know, we do need to recognize uh, the fallibility of our leaders. We can sustain and respect them. But uh, in the end, we have the responsibility ourselves to decide what is is right and wrong, and, and we must be responsible for our own actions and thoughts. We can't just put everything on the church leaders. Right, right. And and I would add just a caveat that members of the church in earlier stages of faith development, to, to kind of open the door to them thinking the way you're suggesting, somebody has to speak up and almost give them permission to think that way. And, and if they, right. that's a risky proposition. I mean, if someone expressed this kind of thinking in gospel doctrine or in a priesthood or least society lesson, uh, you know, you would get a lot of discomfort. Um, 
So hopefully that's changing. Right. That would have to come from the top. That, that if you or I speak up in Sunday school, we're going to kind of be seen as threatening. But if a church leader could begin to say these things in, in conference, and I think some church leaders have, Elder Uchtdorf has spoken to this idea as well. Um, but let's, let's, let's move on here. You, you've got in the paper where you talk about positive steps the church has made and, and we're, we're already speaking to it. We're already talking about the changes they've made in some of these issues and some of these really center and kind of key foundational, um, foundational stones of this issue. Maybe speak a little more to that. What are some of the positive changes you've seen over time? Um, maybe going from like president Kimball to today. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we talked about the, the horribly negative things that were said back in the 70s and 80s. Um, and then, I don't know, at least from my perspective, there was kind of silence on it. That was just the, uh, you know, I guess the default position still, even if it was not explicitly stated, that's that was what people referred to. But then with gay rights, gay rights movement and um, a lot more publicity around uh, gay uh, liberation and, um, you know, uh, rights, then the church started to speak out again. And so while they still wanted to protect what they considered, uh, you know, their doctrine on uh, traditional marriage, they were much better in the way they spoke about gay people, because I, I guess they finally started hearing some of the horror stories of, you know, everything from suicides to, you know, the broken marriages of gay people who got married uh, at the promise of church leaders that everything would work out. Uh, so so the rhetoric began to change. And one of the <laughs> big turning points, I think, was at, at the end of 2012, when the church released its mormonsandgays.org website. Uh, that was a, a big step, I think, to acknowledging, for instance, at the very top of the, that homepage, that it was not a choice. That was huge. Um, then in 2013, you had the church responding to the Boy Scouts of America's policy change, allowing gay youth. At first, there was some mixed messaging where the church, you know, said, we're, we're going to examine this and, and, um, you know, there were, there were rumors going on that the church might even withdraw from Boy Scouts because they said we're going to evaluate what our uh, position is going to be. But then they, they came out in acceptance and said this is actually consistent with their own position, which is, you know, gay people can participate in the church as long as they, uh, you know, adhere to the commandments. 2015, you had the church beginning to support anti-discrimination legislation for gay people. They supported uh, an ordinance in Salt Lake. And then in uh, the state of Utah, after six uh, attempts or five attempts, no, so yeah, six attempts to pass legislation, which failed, the church finally got behind it and employed lobbyists and made calls. And and uh, so the, the Utah legislature passed uh, LGBT non-discrimination legislation. So that was a big step. Also in 2015, right around that time, Elder Christofferson, gave a public interview on TV in which he said that members could publicly advocate for gay marriage without having their membership threatened. They could march in gay pride parades. They could go on Facebook and everything as long as, in his words, their effort didn't attack the church. So that was helpful for members who, in their heart and conscience, believed that gay people should be able to be married 
they they wouldn't have their church membership question. Right. And obviously things aren't perfect yet. Just this past week, the term counterfeit marriage was used again. And, and, and I find that term really odd. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, is if Mormonism looks around at all these other issues, for instance, right? It would, it, if we're going to use the term counterfeit marriage and, and use it in that way and kind of the way we're framing it, which is that it looks kind of like God's way of doing things, but it's, just a little off and it's deceptive. By those standards, Mormonism would clearly call, uh, Catholicism a counterfeit gospel, right? And, and by those standards, it would call the Methodists trying to perform a blessing a counterfeit priesthood. And, and I don't think Mormonism wants to get in the habit of using that kind of framing for every other issue outside of homosexuality where somebody's doing something a little different than us and we claim to be doing it the right way. And, and I think this is just a matter of us as a culture and as an institution needing to mature a little bit and to realize that the kind of terms we use just don't, don't help us to get along with our neighbor. And, and I'm sure in some ways there's still Mormon, Mormons and, and perhaps Mormon leaders who would still want to refer and at least in their head, to Catholicism as a counterfeit gospel or, um, again, somebody else performing a blessing as a counterfeit priesthood. But we've learned not to say that out loud. And, and it feels like on this issue of homosexuality, we still have a little bit of growing up to do in terms of the words we use and recognizing the effect they have on others. Yeah, that was, that was really unfortunate that that article came out with that word choice yesterday. And uh, it's kind of hard to understand, and, and this exhibits, uh, as, as I point out in the, at the beginning of the article, that there appears to be some really inconsistent, well, there is inconsistent messaging, no doubt. I mean, it's, it's very inconsistent. And, and what that indicates um, is that there is probably a wide disparity of opinion uh, at the top on how to handle these issues, the kind of tone to use, and how the church should approach it. I mean, I think the, the, the unexpected release of the November 2015 policy uh, is exhibit number one because the church was making all these great positive steps, as we talked about, uh, but then gay marriage became the law of the land, and then you have uh, all of a sudden this policy come out, which is a huge step back and uh, was caused major trauma among gay members and their families. It, 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 was, it was really... So, yeah, the church, um, I think, as you say, there, there's some maturing to do there, but also I, I think there's, um, you know, maybe some generational differences that uh, entail leaders like the same thing that, that happened with President Kimball and Elder Packer, who, who have different ways of thinking about this that uh, are not as healthy or as enlightened. And until those leaders pass on, there won't be as, as much uh, unanimity in the way they approach these things. Anyway, that's sort of speculation, but it, but it is based on some insight. You you also hit on this idea that there's that they sometimes on these issues they just go silent for a generation. And and as I've looked back over church history, every time some dramatic shift occurs there seems to be kind of a period of silence from the leadership. And, and, and maybe it's because there's conversations going, conversations going on behind the scenes and, and 
the group can kind of tell that there's no set position at that moment. And so they're just still kind of sorting it out. Um, I often wonder too, if just giving some silence allows for a generation to kind of drift away and a new generation to come in and not have heard the old rhetoric. Um, either way, um, you write in the article, uh, Bryce, you say church leaders have drawn a very clear line in how far their position on homosexuality can evolve stating that the church's current position on marriage is God's will and therefore cannot and will not change. To address this belief and the questions raised above, it is necessary for a short digression on our perception of God's will in various ages and how it changes over long periods of time. Um, first, I want to talk about that argument. Um, the institutional church, I was just listening to a really good podcast episode by Laura Hales, uh, on the LDS Perspectives, I think is the name of it. And I forget the name of the gentleman she has on. Um, but they talk about doctrine. And it was a new way of kind of framing doctrine. He was, he was laying out that doctrine, true doctrine is eternal. It has salvific qualities to it. And it's taught repeatedly by many. And I just want to get maybe your thoughts on kind of where you see the church's perspective on homosexuality falling into kind of those three qualifiers in terms of what is eternal truth, at least in the church leader's eyes, and if that holds up. And and maybe we can kind of begin to talk about what room is out there to kind of have some flexibility to shift going forward. Right. Well, it's interesting you bring those three things out as definitions of true doctrine because I, I state something very similarly in my paper in this section about, uh, you know, tradition or God's will, where I state that um, standards or teachings or doctrines that have, one, stood the test of time, two, remained constant across cultures, and three consistently resulted in positive outcomes, or, or you could say salvific, um, that is, they bear good fruit, then those may be considered eternal truths or true doctrines. Um, and as it relates to uh, homosexuality, um, I think a lot of more recent um, expressions of that, namely same-sex marriage, uh, has not been able to stand the test of time yet in church leaders' eyes. And so maybe that's why they're holding so rigidly to what has been tradition. And even though there's not necessarily, well, there's not. And in my mind, there's no revelation on same-sex marriage unless someone says, you know, the church's recent statements are a revelation. But I don't think, um, you know, they've, they've been called that. I guess President Nelson's talk after the policy change he called the, the policy of revelation, but as far as the fundamental uh, position that same-sex marriage is a sin in God's eyes and will be forever, um, I'm not aware of any specific revelation, and certainly there's nothing in canonized scripture that says that. And, and so I think that is something that will take the test of time, and and that's one of the things that I'm trying to, to do with this paper is to get people to really think about what what makes that so. What do we really know that would make that a that, that, that makes same sex marriage a sin in God's eyes and, and contrary to 
what he's taught. And to some people, they might say, well, that's absurd. It's so obvious. But, you know, I, I, I delve into that in detail, and we look at some of the church's teachings and, and rationales for that. Yeah, I I, I want to go back here to the, the handbook piece that I read at the very beginning that you list. I mean, if we're going to say doctrine is a, a true doctrine is eternal and and it's it's from the beginning of time to the end of time and when we say in the handbook that a doctrinal principle is that marriage is between a man and a woman and then the church then says and the church accordingly affirms defining marriage as the legal and lawful union between a man and a woman like it's the church i don't know if it knows it or not but the church is already acknowledging that its definition of marriage isn't a true doctrine. And I don't want to come off like, I don't want to say this the wrong way. I'm not saying like they're wrong, but I'm saying like when you frame it that way, you're acknowledging that in your own past, you've had marriages seen by you as the church and seen by God based on your understanding of God as approved and condoned and, the new and everlasting covenant and living the fullness of the gospel by per, by partaking of these plural marriages. But in the very essence of those marriages, they counter the very definition you're using in the here and now that the church affirms that it wants to define marriage as a legal and lawful wedded union between a man and a woman. It, it's almost like if we all just took a step back and weren't defensive, we could say like, that definition of marriage, and I'm sure the church, you know, I would grant that maybe they would tweak it a little bit in a conversation, but at least based on that phrase in the handbook, that definition of marriage is not an eternally true doctrine from the beginning of time till the end of time. Right, I would agree. And uh, and obviously the, the church has to somehow uh, reconcile that statement with, the future and the reality that men are sealed to more than one wife uh, in this life. So, yeah, there, that's a problematic statement. I agree. Um, also, also, Bryce, too, to take it one step further, is that at some point here in the future, because the court systems have legalized uh, same-sex marriage, at some point the polygamous groups or people fighting against the polygamous laws are going to be taking these things to the Supreme Court. I know one of these laws was already just set aside and not not taken by the Supreme Court, but at some point they're going to make it. And at some point, I think that this is also going to be seen as a is an unconstitutional thing to to prevent people from entering what they view as their religious definition of marriage. And when polygamy becomes legal again, you can see you can see the church is in a kind of between stuck between a rock and a hard place. It it doesn't want to go back to that. It it doesn't want to try to revisit that issue, and and so it's got to kind of frame things not only on the homosexual issue, but it's got to frame things in such a way that that same logic is going to allow it to deal with with the polygamy issue at some future point as well. Right. Yeah. There there are a host of things that could change families the way we know it. Uh, you know, the 1950s traditional family that seems to be the paragon of of church doctrine, uh, and and when you when you understand history and social history, you you realize that you know that little microcosm of time is not what the family has been throughout history, and and nor will it be into the future. Um, you know, I'm not going to 
prognosticate on uh, exactly how it will be, but you know, we just know that uh, humankind changes, and, and hopefully that evolution over time is generally for the good, which I believe it has been. When you when you look at, at how marriages and families and, and warfare and everything and slavery and all the, the horrible things that existed in ancient history and how far we've come today, uh, I continue to believe that uh, that mankind tends to get better. Yeah. Yeah, amen to that. Um, I I I want to preface this question with I'm not I'm not how can I say it? We're not setting this up as either one of us is telling the church they're wrong or they have to change. I just want you to put your hypothetical hat on and and say like I know this is an issue you're passionate about. I know this is an issue that you really wish there was safer space within within our church. For our LGBT brothers and sisters, I, I feel the same way. Um, what are your thoughts on like what room is there? What do you see as the 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 space for movement? Like like I think the brethren feel like they're locked into this. They they're they're in a sense kind of painted into a corner by both our theology as well as our understanding of the Old Testament and what who prophets are and what Scripture is. I want to kind of ask you, like, where do you see the space for conversations to begin to occur and for people to look and say, maybe there is some room to do something? Well, I think there definitely is. Um, (laughs) One of the things that I point out in the paper that I found very interesting when I was doing my research was that church leaders generally don't cite the two primary biblical scriptures uh, that prohibit homosexuality. They're often known as the clobber passages, the one in Leviticus that calls it an abomination and that says that man shall not lie with man, that it is an abomination. And then in Romans 1, it talks about how uh, people, uh, you know, men and women um, did not have natural affection one to another and uh, and how, the, you know, working things that are unseemly, whatever the, the exact language is. But um, these these verses are not generally cited uh by the church as a uh, reason for prohibiting homosexuality. Um, whereas most of Christianity, that's what they use uh, in defense of their position. Where the church goes uh, is in, in defending man-woman marriage is basically their, their definition of eternal marriage and eternal progression. And, that that's really the theological basis that the church uses, not not these biblical scriptures. So that actually gives us a little bit more freedom to explore because, as I point out in the paper, those original um, doctrines that that originated with Joseph Smith and uh, the, the early members of the church um, on eternal progression and spirit birth and procreation and all that. Those are very undeveloped, those doctrines, and and very speculative. And so for us to then take those doctrines and, and hang our hat on them and say, this just means man, woman, and it can't be other any other way, and therefore we're going to deny anyone who's gay, you know, this basic human need to, uh, you know, to love and have uh, affection and companionship, you know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty harsh, sentence to levy based on something that is still very speculative and 
shady and, and, and not worked out theologically. So that's one of the things that I, uh, kind of delve into in the paper. Yeah. And, and I think you hit a nail on the head here that, that the rest of Christianity is using the Old Testament to say homosexuality is wrong. Whereas Mormonism is really placing its bets on the restoration where the restoration teaches that marriage between a man and a woman is right. And, and you're right. When you, when you frame it that way, you leave a space for other things to be right too. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, and that's, that's one of the beauties of Mormonism is that it is expansive and it's not locked in to uh, a certain way of thinking or into, you know, ancient biblical tradition. Certainly there are many biblical traditions, as I point out in the paper, that we don't adhere to today. Uh, and including various biblical commandments and not just Old Testament, but New Testament. For instance, I point out how Paul says women should be silent in the church and should not speak and, you know, let them ask their husbands at, at home. <laughs> you know, we don't we don't hold to that today. That's that's not that we, we now look back at that as not being doctrine. That's cultural. And so we shouldn't be held to biblical standards on homosexuality necessarily. We that doesn't tie us to those. Those, those ancient biblical standards. And, and so I think the church leaders have recognized that, and that's why they don't pin, pin the doctrine on that. It's really their, their theological argument, again, is uh, eternal marriage and, uh, and gender complementarity, uh, you know, the, the, the differences between man and woman and how those differences are, you know, divinely uh, ordered and planned and, and eternal, and, and only they should go together. But, again, I think a lot of that is just sort of, um, guessed at or speculated on. There's, there's really no basis to get into, um, what makes that absolutely eternal truth. And, and I don't, I don't get into the, the deep, deep theology of it as much as, for instance, um, Taylor Petrie does in his seminal dialogue article, which I cite in the paper a few years ago. I, I think I stay more with the nuts and bolts theology, uh, theological application uh and you know and how church leaders would see it i don't i don't get too uh geeky theologically but but i do cover it enough that that i think i i adequately demonstrate that it's it's not something that's set in stone and that indeed it's it's still very uh speculative and and something that we shouldn't be taking so literally as to necessarily deny marriage and companionship and love you know, to gay people. Right, right. And it is interesting as we're naming some of these things that, that the Book of Mormon, right, written for our day, that God, God reserved this book to come forth in 1830 and to have this lasting effect on, on those of, of this, this kind of winding up dispensation before the Christ returns. And yet the Book of Mormon speaks essentially not at all on homosexuality and, and that homosexuality in and of itself is really difficult to find in any of the restoration scripture. It really becomes an Old Testament teaching that Paul reiterates in the New Testament that Jesus doesn't even seem to touch other than, other than one small conversation with a eunuch where we're all kind of picking our position and, and guessing at what's going on there. And, and then you have modern day prophets, seers, and revelators kind of picking back up on it again. But throughout the restoration scripture, it's, 
it's really not even a priority of or of importance. Um, and, and it just seems kind of strange to me. You did lay out in your paper um, old Old Testament kind of things that have changed, and you speak of some of the things in Leviticus that have been done away. And and I often think like the the Old Testament has that loophole, right? That we can say like Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, and hence the law changed, and so some things were just simply bound to be done away by the very nature of Him changing or fulfilling the law. But you hit on some things too that are not uh, they're not just bound to the Old Testament. Uh, some of these are very much things that have changed within the last couple of hundred years within the, the modern day church, but issues like suicide, how we see suicide and how we frame it, and then also birth control. Would you speak to those two for just a moment? Yes. Okay. So those are just interesting um, topics that came to mind. And I think, for instance, suicide is murder. That has existed in uh, Western thought and Christianity since uh you know, medieval times. And, and that teaching and that tradition and that thinking was just inherited by members of the church. There's never been any revelation on that, to, to, that declaring that uh, suicide is murder. But that's the way early church leaders taught it, because that's the way Western Christianity taught it. And yet today, when you go to a funeral where, uh, you know, an LDS funeral where uh, the uh, deceased, you know, suffered suicide, you hear a vastly different message. And there, and I, and I do cite to some of the seminal talks, uh, given on that, how that, uh, now with our, our modern understanding of what suicide is, how it's the result often of mental distress or mental, uh, you know, illness or, or anguish, that it's something that only God can judge and that we do not judge. And certainly we don't call it murder anymore. So that's, I think, one one major departure from traditional thought and from doctrines that were taught by uh, leaders of our own church. Uh, another one is birth control, which I find fascinating because this is something that I still kind of recall from uh, my day, having been raised as a teenager uh, in, in the 70s. And so I remember some of these talks. It was before, you know, I got married. Uh, but I remember these talks and I, I keep saying to myself, I need to ask my parents <laughs> what, what they remember about that and how they justified, because I believe they use birth control, um, and, and how they justified that when, uh, you know, and they were very orthodox uh, when the prophet was teaching so strongly, uh, you know, the birth control, I mean, some of them were just came out and said, it's wickedness. And, you know, this is an abuse of a holy covenant that you've made in the temple and, you know, very, very strong condemning language of birth control. But, you know, I think the reality is that uh, with each successive generation, they just kind of disregarded that. And and then church leaders began, uh, you know, the, the newer church leaders did not take up, they did not pick up that that doctrine and teach it. And And so today, the only reference to birth control, for instance, in the handbook, is a little section that has that in the title, and then the content doesn't even mention the words birth control. It simply says uh, it is a privilege of married couples who are able to bear children to provide mortal bodies for the spirit children of God. And, and it goes on to say that the decision of how many children to have 
uh, is an intimate and private decision. It should be left up to the couple and the Lord. And then they not long ago added uh, a second part that says married couples should also understand that sexual relations within marriage are divinely approved, not only for the purposes of procreation, but also as a way of expressing love and strengthening emotional and spiritual bonds. So that's that's another big change in a relatively short period of time, really from, you know, the 40s through the 70s. That's when modern birth control began to emerge and the church leaders, the prophets began teaching against it. Uh, and now, you know, you have the current handbook, which says nothing negative about it. And most of the church, you know, using it. Um, and, and yet, you know, this is something where. You don't hear church leaders retracting, you know, current church leaders retracting these statements. I mean, they still stand. I, I suppose someone could, you know, could resurrect these old quotes from Joseph Building Smith or Harold B. Lee or President Kimball about the evils of birth control uh, because no one uh, no one has contradicted them. No prophet has retracted them, but but it is not taught. And so, again, I think that's where we get to doctrine. That would have been considered doctrine back then because that's what what's taught and that's what the membership believed but it's now probably not considered doctrine because it's not taught and you know people don't believe that it's a, a necessary commandment or requirement right and, and at least right into kind of where i want to go next that again going back to this lds perspectives podcast it was michael goodman that's who laura hales interviews and he's a professor at byu and he lays out kind of this new vision for how to interpret doctrine. Because I'm like you, Bryce. Like, like you could get 40 Mormons in a room and say, how do we define the word doctrine? And all 40 people in the room would say something different. We don't have a real definition for doctrine that holds up other than what you said earlier, which is whatever the current teachings of the church are. But Michael Goodman kind of changes things. And I've never heard an LDS leader pose it this way before, but when he uses those three kind of, uh, those three qualifiers of being eternal, uh, being salvific or having some effect on your salvation and being taught regularly by all the leaders in the church generation after generation. And, and so when I look at things like suicide, uh, the priesthood ban, uh, birth control, like you're right, the church's position today is very different. And in fact, so different that I think the average person, when they see the present stance in the present way of framing it in the handbook, and then look at the past way leaders taught it, spoke about it, framed it, they're so different that they're essentially in my mind, and I think in most people's minds, contradictory right and by that definition exactly and by that definition of doctrine then you can't know of doctrine until after the fact you have to let a certain amount of time pass by uh before you can say that it's true for or to be able to say that it's eternal because until you know the fruits of it until you know that it's uh continually embraced by not only the church leaders but by the membership uh and that it's salvific or bears good fruit you know, you, you can't say in the moment that it's taught, which would include the current teaching on gay marriage, that uh, it, that it's eternal and true. So I think we've got to have some time pass before uh, anyone can say clearly that this is church, at least true doctrine. You know, we, we have to put in that qualifier, I guess. Yeah, and I want to take it a step further where 
I say like, like I understand how maybe they would say like birth control, uh, suicide, the perspectives we had on race and priesthood. They might make the argument based on Michael Goodman's new interpretation of, of how to define doctrine. The, the church leaders could now make the argument that none of those things were doctrine, that they were all policies. But here's where I have still have a problem is that if past church leaders so misunderstood the eternal doctrine that the policies that they formed around those doctrines were harmful and flat out wrong to the point where the church today contradicts those past teachings and frames those things very differently. Like it doesn't matter anymore what's doctrine and what's principle because we have to just stop and say, how do we explain how past leaders so misunderstood the doctrine and how the general membership so misunderstood the doctrine that everybody was on an incorrect framing of it. And and so we can take the perspective, for instance, that marriage between a man and a woman is doctrine and is true doctrine. But what we have to do when we look at the past is recognize that we still, in the very here and now, it's possible that we could be so misunderstanding the doctrine that our framing of it right now in this very moment is incorrect. Yeah, that's right. And again, I think that's why it has to, to stand the test of time and it has to bear good fruit. And I, I think the bearing good fruit part is so important. Uh, and, and, you know, polygamy, I don't think, uh, generally bore good fruit. I mean, I guess some people would make the argument that a lot of strong church leaders came out of polygamous families. So maybe that would be, you could argue one good fruit, but there was also a lot of pain and suffering and, and still is today. Uh, clearly the, the doctrine uh, banning blacks from the priesthood and temple ordinances bore horrible fruit, which continues on today in the implicit racism that uh, many of us unknowingly possess uh, because of how we were raised and, and thinking of black people. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this, this makes us all confront the fallibility of church leaders and recognize that uh, – while we say this church is run by by God, uh, I think what we literally mean is that, you know, the church leaders are seeking inspiration from God and revelation from God on how to run it. And God grants them agency like he grants all of us agency. And sometimes we make mistakes. And we've clearly seen that in church history, that mistakes have been made. You know, President Uchtdorf said that in his talk. Uh, you know, that uh, not everything that's been taught by leaders has been in accordance with God's will. So that's a hard thing, I think, for a lot of the, the current membership in, in this day and age of follow the prophet and correlation to grasp. But again, I think that's something that people like Patrick Mason and Richard Bushman are pushing against so that we don't have these false expectations that are crushed when we learn of mistakes and see, uh, you know, incorrect teachings that, that do cause harm. Right. And, and you spend the last section of this paper you wrote, which is what we're going to dive into next, talking about the fruits of each of these issues. And, and, but before we get into that, just to hit one more time that, you know, the doctrine, for instance, on race and priesthood, the, the doctrine was that all are alike unto God. And, and yet 
the leaders of the 1940s, Brigham Young in 1852, the leaders in the 30s and the 50s, they so misunderstood the doctrine that they took false racist theories and called them doctrine. And, and I, I, I know like we don't like, I feel like Mormonism doesn't really want to have this vulnerable conversation, but we just have to come to grips that at any given moment, church leaders have in the past and could possibly right now be misunderstanding the doctrine that they have false policies around it or even overreaching and calling other things doctrine that maybe are not. And, and that's not saying they're wrong. It's simply the fact of looking at our history and being realistic about what that tells us. And and so let's dive in here to, because I think it's important, you're right, the gospel talks all the time about that that those things of, of a living branch, those things of a living tree will bear good fruit. And so let's talk a little bit about those. You you start off with the um, some various positions. And the first one you start off with is the church's position on doctrinal basis. And if you can kind of run us through um, canonized scripture and how that helps us form the doctrinal position of homosexuality, uh, what modern day teachings we have, and and then kind of walk us through where you see those things maybe not bearing good fruit, at least at least to your eyes or my eyes in the here and now. Right. So, <clears throat> pardon me. So there are three major sections of examination of the church's position on homosexuality and same-sex marriage. The first big basis of examination is doctrinal. And we've talked about uh, canonized scripture and how really the only prohibitions in canonized scripture are Old Testament and New Testament, and our own church leaders don't even refer to those generally. Um, and, and, and on all the current teachings and church resources on homosexuality and same-sex marriage, they do not refer to these biblical passages. Um, modern, or at least restoration scripture, the, the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and Book of Mormon say nothing about homosexuality or same-sex marriage. So then that brings us to modern-day teachings and, and the theological argument that the church leaders have fashioned as a defense against same-sex marriage. And uh, as I mentioned, that theological argument is primarily based on their teachings of eternal marriage, the plan of salvation, and gender complementarity, how men and women are designed to go together. And those come from uh, documents such as the Proclamation uh, on the Family, uh, First Presidency Statement on Same-Gender Marriage, and a document that's called the Divine Institution of Marriage, which I delve into um, in, with great specificity because that has uh, probably the the most um, developed of the doctrinal basis that the church uses to argue against same-sex marriage. And, and we, we don't need to go into all of the detail of that here on, on this discussion, I don't think. But the three main arguments they use are the procreation argument that because gay people can't procreate, that they aren't meant to be married. But I think this one is so easily dispelled because um, there are so many heterosexuals that are able to be married just for time that, you know, are either unable to have children, uh, you know, or are past the age of childbearing or 
you know, for whatever reason, just are not going to have children. And, and yet their marriage is still given respect. It is based solely on love and companionship and, you know, not for the purpose of multiplying and replenishing the earth. And, and we take joy in seeing, you know, people united in this kind of a, a love based marriage. And yet that's denied to, to gay people. Uh, presume uh, again on the basis that they can't procreate. So the argument is just very inconsistent there. The second big one is um, the complementarianism argument that man and woman uh, are uh, these these divinely um, or eternal. You know, the gender is eternal, and that man and women are are designed and meant to go together, and they, that uh, same-sex marriage, uh, you know, does not acknowledge that difference. And, and I guess the, the thing there that I, the major takeaway I try to, to get at there is that that's, that truth still holds for 95% of the planet's population, you know, that are heterosexual. And there's no reason why allowing gay people to get married, you know, destroys that complementarianism argument of man, woman, because it, it still exists. And, and then when we, we delve into the more theological, uh, origins of, you know, what Joseph Smith taught about spirit birth and intelligences and, and, you know, our heavenly parents, as I previously mentioned, that's so undeveloped and speculative that it really does not provide a solid basis on which to deny gay people one of the most fundamental, uh, and, and crowning, you know, achievements of of human existence, which is to find someone that you love and want to be with, you know, in, in every way, uh, and have that companionship throughout life. Um, and then the last argument is the, the families and children argument that the church makes, uh, against gay marriage, that redefining marriage will weaken the institution of marriage and undermine the family. And this is an argument that was made in all the court cases around the country, um, that tried to, uh, to, to have um, Defense of Marriage Act laws, that somehow gay marriage would weaken heterosexual marriage and um, bring about, um, you know, uh, bring about the uh, lack of fecundity or, or, or ability to have kids somehow. It just and, and all the courts just found this completely nonsensical, and the expert witnesses. Uh, it, for instance, in the Prop 8 uh, court case, uh, they all withdrew, and um, the, the court just found these these arguments totally unpersuasive. And and really, it's just common sense when you look at it. How is a gay couple who gets married going to cause you know someone like myself, who's happily heterosexually married, to all of a sudden not want to be married, or to cause other heterosexuals not to want to get married or to have kids. It, it really doesn't make sense. The only way it makes sense, and, and this is what I've been puzzling out in my mind and had discussions with others like um, Greg Prince on this, is that some of the older church leaders still have in mind that somehow being gay is a choice. Even though explicitly the church says that it's not, they still seem to believe, and I see this with people today still in the church, that somehow if we allow gay marriage, that people are going to experiment and, and young kids are going to be influenced to be gay. And, uh, you know, you'll just have everyone wanting to be gay. And, and all of a sudden God's plan for um, 
multiplying or replenishing the earth becomes frustrated and eternal families and everything becomes pro- becomes frustrated. But I think there's enough evidence, you know, with the, <laughs> uh, just thinking about our own, again, our own lives and our own marriages and the way we love and who we're attracted to that, uh, that, that just doesn't make sense. And when we look at other countries who've had gay marriage on the books for some time now, Canada and some of the Scandinavian countries, uh, you know, you, you don't see that sort of thing happening. Um, so that, that's, uh, I think the, the third main argument that, uh, that I address, uh, as far as the church's theological basis for, uh, calling gay marriage a sin and against God. Right. And then the next one you lead into is the moral argument. You've got the church's position on a moral basis. Um, maybe spend the same amount of time here just kind of walking us through that one. So this one, um, I wanted to look at what is the moral reasoning, if any, for denying homosexuals the ability to love and marry, <clears throat> assuming there is no uh, religious basis behind it. So in other words, if... Uh, someone were to say, I'm not quite sure if this is a doctrine, if there are a true doctrine. I know what the church teaches, but I'm not convinced that it's true. How can an honest moral member of the church who's not convinced that it's, you know, eternal doctrine use their own God-given intellect and ability to reason to determine whether same-sex marriage is moral or not moral? So we're setting aside religious implications and just saying, what's the moral basis? So I'll just hit a few of the the arguments that I make here. Uh, the first one is that when most people talk about the morality of homosexuality, they are absolutely focused on sex. That is the first thing that comes to mind. They see same-sex relationships as sinful and immoral and only about sex, and I think they can't get gay sex out of their minds and they they say, ooh, icky, disgusting, and, and they believe that's the spirit recoiling within them. Um, and and what they can't see is, and, and it's probably because they don't know gay people, and they don't know gay people who are in loving relationships, and they've never seen or can even conceive that a gay couple could have a loving, meaningful, edifying relationship in every way uh, and, and in the same way as a heterosexual couple. So once, uh, you know, you can get just that focus off the sexual aspect and realize that gay people have the same ability to form, uh, you know, loving, committed relationships as straight people, then that would be a reason for observing that they can be just as moral as uh, a heterosexual uh, marriage relationship. Uh, another area that I talk about is instinct versus reason. So sexuality obviously provokes deep gut instincts in people. And when you really look at people's objection to gay marriage, a lot of it is because to them it feels instinctively repulsive and awful. But we have to think about this. To a gay person, sex with the opposite sex to them feels repulsive and and awful. Now, I, I need to say there's there is a spectrum. It's not just one or the other. There are people who are truly bisexual and can be attracted to both, but I'm, I'm sort of skipping over that for the sake of um, brevity in this article and just really focusing on people who are exclusively homosexual. Um, and to them, you know, the, the 
instinctive feeling is and the natural feeling is they are attracted to the same sex and they are repulsed, you know, by physical intimacy with, uh, you know, the opposite sex. So can we really use that gut instinct to uh, or as a basis for declaring something is moral or immoral? Uh, and, and one of the examples I bring up is, you know, when you're a child before, you know, you've reached puberty and you first learn about sex from your best friend at school. And I remember me, you know, I first or second grade hearing some jokes and boys talking about it and saying, wow, did you know this? This is how you have babies. And I remember thinking, no way, you know, not my parents. They would never do that. Uh, and so that that repulsion and that disgust and, and everything that tells you, you know, inside when you're a child that that is just wrong. Heavenly Father does not approve of that. Is that a basis for deciding the morality of, you know, human sexuality? Clearly not. You know, once we reach puberty and all of a sudden, oh, yeah, I get it now. I, you know, I, I have that desire. And as long as it's, you know, kept within the bounds of marriage, it's perfectly normal and moral and acceptable. So applying that parallel to um, homosexuality, um, you know, it's it's no more appropriate for it. Uh, you know, judging the feelings of a child who doesn't have the capacity and ability to understand human sexuality, uh, you know, to, to judge that is immoral. Um, you know, you can't have a heterosexual who can't, who doesn't have the capacity to understand, you know, a homosexuality uh, or homosexual attraction and desire, you know, to, to judge that is immoral. Uh, and let's see, I'll just hit one more argument, and that's natural versus unnatural. A lot of people say, uh, you know, homosexual relationships are not natural. And there are two main arguments. One is because they can't produce offspring. Uh, and we kind of dealt with that in the doctrinal basis because the church uses that as a doctrinal basis. But when you look at it, the vast majority of human sexual activity is not to have Children, right? I mean, um, the, the reality is the vast majority of human sexual activity is for the purpose of expressing love and desire, you know, with the person that you love. You know, and I'm talking about e- even within a healthy, stable marriage, it is not just about having children. And so I, I think just because gay people's uh, physical intimacy doesn't produce children, that doesn't make it immoral. Um, and then the second main reason is that people that, that people think um, uh, homosexual relationships are are unnatural is because gay sex itself is inherently unnatural. But when you think about it, there are heterosexuals that engage in the same kind of uh, sex acts that gay people do, but there are no bedroom police to say what's to tell them what's right or what's wrong. That's, again, left up to the couple. You know, at one time, the church did try to weigh in on this in the 70s under President Kimball, and that did not go very well, and it did not last very long before there was a quick retraction that said, do not pry into these affairs. This is, you know, completely left up to married couples. And let me jump in here for a second, Bryce, because the opposite is true as well, that if there was a same-sex couple who did not engage in any of the acts that someone thought were un- unnatural, and they just expressed love in other ways. Maybe they just cuddled and kissed and held each other, um, um, 
you know, with, with clothes not on and just, just embracing each other. And we would still see that as sinful and not appropriate. And yet nothing in any terms of any certain act we see as unnatural having occurred. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of a quandary for a lot of gay Mormon youth or who are in the dating uh, scene, you know, because they might feel that they should be able to date and hold hands and kiss just like their heterosexual peers and still be completely temple worthy. And I know of some uh, BYU bishops who agree to those standards with the gay members of their wards. Uh, and yet there are others who would say, no, that violates the church's standards on expressing homosexual behavior. So even if you hold hands, you know, that's grounds for having your temple recommend taken away or for, you know, prohibiting you from taking the sacrament. So, let me jump in again too. The we teach in a way. I think we would say the law of chastity is a doctrine, right? We would see that as being eternal, being salvific, being taught repeatedly by the church and its leaders. And yet, the law of chastity and how it applies to a straight person versus a homosexual person, the rules that each of those folks have to follow is very different. Which again kind of puts a crack in the idea that doctrine is true, eternal, constant, you know, lasts forever and taught repeatedly. Like there's still things here we don't quite have worked out in the way that we understand these issues and the policies we form around them. Right. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, that's clearly one, uh, again, very big disparity. The law of chastity actually has been kind of redefined with the uh, the advent of gay marriage, because before it just used to be, you know, uh, sexual abstinence before marriage and, and then complete fidelity within marriage. And now it's been redefined as uh, sexual abstinence before marriage and sex only within a marriage between a man and a woman. So they had to insert that because legal and lawful marriage, you know, exists for gay people. So, yeah. And two, and two, Bryce, like if if a heterosexual couple held hands and kissed, that wouldn't be breaking the law of chastity. But if a gay couple held hands and kissed, for many leaders from top to, to local, that would be seen as breaking the law of chastity. And if we don't have the consistency in the law for every one of God's children, then it's not a doctrine because it's not true. It's not consistent. It's not eternal. And so on on some level, we as a church are going to have to figure out a way that the rules are the same for both the heterosexual and the homosexual individual. We can't be giving out two different laws of chastity. Right. And that's that's one of the observations that I make in, in the paper. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The uh, the last one you jump into um, is the church's position on an empirical basis. Uh, again, just kind of kind of wrap us up with this last one, giving us kind of a rundown of this uh, this concept. Right. So we've we've done an examination from the doctrinal perspective, from the moral reasoning perspective, you know, all religious belief aside, and now this third perspective, which is perhaps in my mind the most important, because we now look at the fruits. And so by empirical basis, what I mean by that is it's based on observation or experience rather than just theory or pure logic. So we want to say what are or we want to examine what are the fruits of the church's position 
And if the church's position is correct, then we would expect good fruits, like the fruits of the Spirit, for instance. You know, love, joy, peace, um, contentment, happiness. Uh, you know, those, those are generally the things that we would expect from keeping commandments. You know, there would be generally positive outcomes. Now, again, you don't expect that your life is going to be perfect. Obviously, bad things happen. But in general, if you if a commandment is of God, you would expect that there would be good fruits that would follow the keeping of that commandment. <clears throat> so by that logic, the church's position uh, for gay people, which is uh, now primarily would be celibacy, uh, you would expect there to be good fruits. But I think on its face we see that celibacy does not have good fruits because the church itself is constantly teaching our unmarried, you know, young single adults to get married because they know all the problems that follow, particularly young men, when they stay single for too long. And among gay people, uh, it's even worse because of the, the double whammy, the teaching they get, that the desire that they have, um, while the church says it's not a sin, uh, they say that, you know, that, that fundamental nature you have is essentially defective. And if you, if you act on it, then, uh, you know, you are causing the destruction of the family and, and bringing the downfall of society. So what does that teach gay people? And so the, the fruits of the church's position, and this is gleaned from, uh, it's from studies. There are, there are a number of major surveys and studies. Although I don't focus too much on those because a lot of people have in the church have problems with the studies. So I focus more on my own observation from knowing hundreds of gay people um, and uh, having read hundreds of accounts. And, and I acknowledge that I'm just one person expressing my observation. And so I tell the reader, you know, don't just take my word for it. Talk to every gay person you know, and you know, gay Mormon particularly, and see what they say. But basically, the fruits of the church's position are, and I'll just hit a few of these, extreme guilt and self-loathing, even when you're living church standards, depression and despair with occasional suicidal thoughts. And the suicide, that is a common thing that we can't dismiss because we, we hear about it too much today, and there's a suicide epidemic among young people in Utah. And I know a lot of people try to, to distance the, the church from and say, oh, we don't know for sure. But let me tell you, when you read any gay person's story, gay Mormon person's story particularly, they all have suicidal ideation, almost to an individual. And, and, I, and one of the things I do in this section of the paper is I cite a lot of personal stories. And I think to a lot of people, these are probably maybe the most moving parts of the paper because you, you hear gay people expressing in their own words how they felt uh, growing up. And, and so anyway, the, the, basically, the fruits of the church's position uh, are, are highly negative. That is celibacy and, and not being able to express uh, love and have companionship, you know, like, a, like heterosexual people are. Uh, those fruits are highly negative. And then I turn around and I say, let's look at the fruits of gay people who are married. In, that is in a gay marriage. Um, what do we see there? And basically what we find, I mean, well, first of all, you would expect based on the church's doctrine and some of their teachings that, uh, particularly the one that just came out that gay marriage is counterfeit and 
you know, that it would only result in despair and unhappiness. Well, what do we find? It doesn't result in despair and unhappiness. In fact, uh, gay people who uh, are married and, and, and basically abide by the same principles and, and truths that straight people do are able to realize the same blessings and benefits. Uh, there's no difference. So that, to me, is probably one of the most, in my mind, one of the most telling um, indications as to whether the church's position is a true doctrine and one that we should really, really kind of think about because there are so many negative and harmful impacts from the church's position, and yet we see there are all the positive fruits of, of a heterosexual marriage also accrue to uh, gay people who, who are in same-sex marriages. So that's basically the, the upshot of the empirical examination section. Yeah, and, and you walked us into another paradox, which is um, we, we know that if we go on LDS.org, they've got a spot where they talk about doctrine, and they list nine basic doctrines of the church, and one of them is the plan of salvation. And the, the trouble here, and again, I'm trying to be sensitive, but the trouble here is that it feels to somebody like me, and I, and I know it feels like this to you, and it feels like this to, to our gay brothers and sisters, that the plan of salvation is very different in terms of what is required and asked of someone who is heterosexual versus homosexual. The plan of salvation for a heterosexual is to seek out a, a marriage in this life, to have children, to... Uh, to multiply and replenish the earth, to be sealed in the temple for all time and eternity. The plan of salvation for our gay brothers and sisters is to be single, be alone, keep these, these urges and this, this, uh, this framing that you've been born with, keep it at bay, and on the other side, God will make it all up to you and fix everything. And, and I'm, I'm okay understanding that we don't get everything we want in this life and that God will make up things on the other side. I love that teaching within the church. Um, but I would simply say, like, we need to take a step back and can we be open to a conversation about what the plan of salvation looks like for our heterosexual members and what the plan of salvation looks like for our homosexual members and and if we can all just have a vulnerable conversation, if those are different, then again, that raises a lot of questions about what's doctrine, what's eternal, where, and again, I don't want to get too off into the weeds, but this, this recognition that if doctrine is consistent and the plan of salvation is consistent, then it has to apply to all of God's children, regardless of the feelings or attractions or the identity that they're born with. Right. Yes, and, and, and that's you bring up another point that um about inconsistencies. The church's position of celibacy for gay people is inconsistent with you know God's very first uh statement after creating man, which is what? It is not good for man to be alone. And so he created a, a helpmeet for him, a companion. And so if we recognize that, that it's not good for man to be alone, why is it that we say it's necessary for a homosexual man to be alone? You know, and it's not. That's one of the things I try to show is that they are better off in a marriage relationship with the same expectations for 
uh, you know, married life and all the benefits that that provides them and society. Um, you know, do if you're a parent, this is one of the things I ask. If you're a parent and you have a gay child, would you rather have them going to bars and 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 hooking up, or would you rather them being in a uh, committed monogamous worthy marriage relationship with, you know, uh, someone of the same sex. And, you know, I think most parents would choose the latter. And I, a lot of, I know a lot of people will say, well, it doesn't have to be either or. I'd rather that they follow church standards and be celibate. But, you know, the reality is for the vast majority of people, they're not going to do that. I mean, when we need to ask ourselves, those of us who are heterosexual and don't have to deal with that question, would we be willing to do that? Would we give up the person we love, our beloved spouse, for the church? Uh, and those are the kinds of questions I think we have to ask back at ourselves before we are so willing to enforce that and inflict that uh, on on the poor minority of gay people. Right. You uh, you finish up the paper. I know we've gone long here, and I apologize. Say so, uh, the last little section of your paper is where do we go from here? Um, maybe take us home, kind of talking about that segment of your paper, and then and then wrap us up by. Just sharing maybe any final thoughts you've got as you put this together and, and, and where your heart is at and, and what you're hopeful for and, and kind of where, I don't know, just kind of wrap all this up, I guess, and, and, uh, help the listeners understand kind of why this issue is so important to you. Sure. Be happy to. So where do we go from here? You know, one big answer is the church can obviously continue to change its rhetoric, to not use words like counterfeit, to help educate its members to be uh, more understanding and empathetic of homosexuals, uh, to, uh, you know, teach everyone how to treat them and to, 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 to basically better educate our straight members of the church. But the thing that I pointed out is while, while this is a good objective and it needs to happen, it's still not going to fundamentally change things. It would be like prior to the 1978 revelation of blacks in the priesthood. It would be like, well, you know, let's not teach anymore that blacks were inferior, inferior spiritually. You know, let's be more empathetic and everything. But but still, you know, they don't have the same rights as we do. They still can't go to the temple. They still can't hold the priesthood. But let's just, you know, be really nice to them and be really loving to them. Sorry, but that doesn't make up for the fact that they are treated differently. And the same thing applies here with gay people. No matter how much the church educates, no matter how much empathy and love they show, as long as they teach young gay children that that core part of their personality is something that, if expressed, you know, is following Satan and will, you know, bring about despair and unhappiness and, and, and basically tells them that they're defective, then they will continue to suffer depression, despair, and they will leave the church, and their families will continue to leave the church as well. And the church is going to have a large outflow of people because more and more people are just not seeing that. Their experience is saying, hey, gay people are just like me. And, um, you know, I, I'm not seeing the fruits that the church is teaching. So basically what my proposition is, is... We need to seek another 1978 quote unquote style revelation. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is something that again, I can't prognosticate about the future and I'm not telling the church what to adopt or, or what doctrine to, to, uh, 
you know, uh, to, um, to change. But I'm basically saying that if, if we want to, uh, keep gay people in the church and if we want to treat them as whole human beings, then this is the only thing that would work. It would, it would have to be something like a 1978 revelation. Uh, but, but again, I, I recognize that is, uh, you know, in the church leader's hands, it's in God's hands. And so I think the, the upshot of what this paper is trying to do is it's trying to get people to think. It's trying to make the ground fertile for revelation. It's trying to provoke the same kind of thinking that President Kimball went through himself. And I, I cite some of, of, um, you know, what he went through, what he acknowledged in himself were big hurdles that he had to overcome to even be able to ask the question and to take it to the Lord. And, um, you know, I, I hope that the church leaders are doing this um, and that they will consider consider doing this and that the church membership will think about this. Because uh, another thing I recognize is that, you know, I'm not sure revelation can come if the church isn't prepared for it. Uh, and so I'm hoping that, you know, this paper will get people thinking and talking and discussing. And, uh, you know, my, my hope is that if, if God truly does guide this church and inspire its leaders, that the truth will come out one way or the other, whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong on, on these observations. Um, you know, I think time will tell, but, you know, the longer time goes on, the more suicides we have, the more people we have leaving the church. So, I just want as much as I can to dispel myth and to bring, you know, solid knowledge to the table so that the best decisions can be made and so that, you know, inspiration can be sought in the right way. That's, I guess, the intent of, of what I'm trying to do with this paper. Beautiful, beautiful, Bryce. Um, kind of as a closing thought, I, I want to hit on two things you said. One is that, no, I mean, you're not demanding the brethren get a revelation or have an answer, but rather... Like we all just need to recognize there's a lot of pain and hurt right now in Mormonism on this issue. And, and that if, you know, if, if Adam was that men might be and men are that they might have joy, then the gospel needs to be uplifting to God's children. And if, and if there's a section of God's children who are experiencing deep harm and trauma from the way the gospel applies to them, then, then I don't think there's anything wrong with us as, as a community, as a, as an entity, as an institution, and as a church seeking a reconciliation for that. Not necessarily saying this is what it has to be, this is what it has to look like, but to simply live out the DNC, uh, Doctrine and Covenant section, where it's our responsibility to lift the hands that hang down and to strengthen the feeble knees. The other thing is I think the church in a sense feels like it's painted itself into a corner because our, our theology hinges on, on this idea of marriage and it hinges on it because we've painted ourselves into it, but hinges on this one man, one woman being sealed for eternity. Yet we realize our own history has paradoxes to that. And as we're having this conversation tonight on so many of these issues, I've realized that if, if true doctrine is eternal and it, and it applies uniformly to God's children, if all have that doctrine available to them, and then we open our eyes to how homosexuals and heterosexuals in the church are affected, and we realize that these true doctrines do not affect them uniformly, 
then that also begs for reconciliation. And so I just think that you've done a beautiful job of just opening the dialogue to questions. And, and there's nothing wrong with questions. Questions are honored. And, and we should have a safe space to be heard and to voice concerns and to share like where we're struggling to make this work and why we don't see this adding up in certain places or what is the fruit of these issues. And if the fruit isn't good fruit, like someone else to either help us walk that back into where it is or, or something has to give. And, and so I think you've just created a, a beautiful space to talk about it, to be better informed to let go of old adages that don't hold up anymore, that the church itself has moved on from, and to recognize that somewhere out there, there has to be some step, some reconciliation to to decrease and minimize this trauma to a segment of our membership on the margins. Um, and, and I just want to say thank you for all that you've done. We'll, we'll put a link up to the paper. Uh, I want to give you one last chance. Share with us the website and... And let us know, you know, where, where else people can be of help, I guess. Right. Thanks, Bill. I, I think that was a, a great wrap up. Uh, I think you really summarized very well what I'm trying to do with this. And uh, the website is mormonlgbtquestions.com. And uh, thank you for putting up that link. We Just in three days, I think I've got 12,000 hits now. So it's been, uh, you know, something that, that's really been making the rounds and and I've got some amazing feedback from people even from church leaders that uh, give me much hope that uh, you know it will be thought-provoking and uh, like you said that's that's my hope that we'll be that we'll feel free to ask questions and to really examine this internally uh, so that God can bless us with revelation on on the right path to take Amen. Amen, my friend. Thank you so much for being on and, and just appreciate you taking your time to, to share some of this with the listeners. All right. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Thank you.